the legacy of the 67 Wildcats. So what do I mean by legacy? When you hear the word legacy, it's often used to, to uh, in association with someone's death or some big milestone that they've reached in their career or maybe some record that they set when they were in athletics or something. It's like that, that man's legacy was this or that. But in the, for the purpose of today's lesson, I'm using legacy to mean what will people remember you by when you're gone? What, how will you be remembered by your family? How will you be remembered by your friends? How will you be remembered by the people you worked with? What, when you die, what will be your legacy? So uh, in, front of, in front of you, you see a slide of someone looking at a flat tire. Everybody had a flat tire in here or some point in life? Yeah, I don't think in my life I've never had a flat tire and thought, wow, this is a good day to have a flat tire. <laughs> but <clears throat> usually what I hear people say when a flat tire happens to them or something bad happens to them, they'll say, why me? Why did this happen to me? And I often want to say instead, why not you? Why not you? Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this day and the opportunity to speak your word. And I thank you for your word and for the power and truth that's in it. I say, pray, Father, if anything I say that's not of you, I pray it would fall to the ground and die. But anything that I speak of you, I pray from you, I pray, Father, would take root in the hearts of those who have ears to hear, and it would bear much fruit. So why not me? Why, 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 why not you when something bad happens to you? The message today, and don't tune me out, okay, ladies and non-football fans, but my lesson today is based on events around the 1967 Elgin Wildcat football team. I'm not going to bore you with the details of every game, but I think it is a story that bears telling. Through the years, you get in these conversations with people and you start sharing stories, and often I'll find myself sharing the events of the 1967 Elgin Wildcat football season. And invariably, invariably, or maybe better said, without exception, the response will be, I don't believe it. Someone should write a book about it. That would make a great movie. So I found myself last September telling the story to some close friends, and that was their response. Someone should make a movie of that. Someone should write a book about it. And as I'm still in the process of retiring and I have some time, I decided, you know, I'm tired of thinking about this, and I'm going to put some effort in deciding, can I do something with this story? So in January of this year, I spent, starting in January, I spent three months visiting people, went up to Amarillo or Canyon and met with my old high school football coach, talked to another coach that lives outside of Amarillo, Drove down to Beaumont and met with one of the black players from my team. Went to Elgin, where I grew up, and went through the newspaper articles. And I'll apologize right now for the quality of some of the slides you're going to see because it's things that were cut out of papers that were over 50 years old. And I went through the school board minutes trying to figure out what was all was going on at the time of the 1967 football season. So what I sh I'm going to share with you today is true, and it's as accurate as old men's memories can be. <laughs> when I went, and I, I went to Elgin and met with uh, six of the seniors that were on that team, and I asked them all kinds of questions, and it was amazing uh, how some of the stories didn't jive. Some of them just didn't remember it. Uh, I chalk it up to getting hit in the head too much. Uh, 
But some of them had memories that were very vivid, and they didn't line up with mine. So what I'm going to share with you is the truth, as I understand it and experienced it, blended with other people's memories as well. So that, that's the disclaimer I have to offer. So I, I was, in 1967, I was a junior in high school. I was 16 years old. So to save you the trouble, that was 57 years ago. And I'll be 71 next month. And this growing old thing is an interesting, at least it is to me. It's like ever so often my body will just remind me, oh, here's a new thing that happens when you grow old. <laughs> I was down on the Texas coast fishing, and uh, I went out with a guide, and he had an airboat, one of those things like you used to see in the Everglades, right? And it runs on shallow water. It even run right across land. That was an experience. But so I'm sitting up next to him, and we're flying across the water about 35, 40 miles an hour, and my body started saying, how about this? How do you like that? And I couldn't figure out what it was. I felt like my eyes were trying to fly. <laughs> And what it was, the bags under my eyes had gotten so big, the wind hitting it just like. <laughs> yeah. Why me? Why me? Well, we're not promised uh, an easy life, right? We're not. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, it says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. And if you want to look this up yourself, the scriptures before 3 and after 5 do not say, but if you're a Christian, you won't have any problems. It doesn't say that. It says that we will. We will. Matthew 5, 45 says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he made his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Everybody's going to get the same treatment in some ways when it comes to how the world operated. I'm not saying as Christians that we don't have special authority and we don't have some exceptions to what we can do through our faith. I'm just saying we live in a fallen world. And then finally, Peter gives a firm warning about an enemy that we have. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter says that Satan wants to devour and destroy you, just like a roaring, hungry lion. So if you wonder why you feel attacked sometimes, you have an enemy. You have an adversary. And sometimes <clears throat> we even help him out by some of the things that we say and do, right? I, I was talking with, with Shay a couple days ago, and one of the things we talked about was um, how we all wait in life for things to get easier. Think in your own life if you've waited for something to get easier. Oh, I just got to get through this and then it'll be easy. I just got to get through preseason and then it'll be okay. I've just got to get through my junior year of high school and then the classes are going to get easier. Or I've just got to get to my spring and my senior year of college and it's going to be easier. It's what we do. We wait for stuff to get easier. It will never get easier. What happens is you handle hard better. That's what happens. Most people think that it, it's going to get easier. Life is going to get easier. Basketball is going to get easier. School's going to get easier. It never gets easier. What happens is you become someone that handles hard stuff better. So that's a mental shift that has to occur in each of your brains. It has to. Because if you go around waiting for stuff to get easier in life, it's never going to happen. And then what happens? Oh, it's so hard. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, this, I don't know, when, it, when is it going to be easy for me? Oh, it's easy for other people. It's not. It's hard. And the second we see you handling stuff, handling hard better, what are we going to do? We're going to make it harder. We're going to make it harder. Because we're preparing for you for when you leave here. Not just basketball and life. 
And if you think life, when you leave college, is going to be all of a sudden get easy because you graduated and you got a Duke degree, it's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. So make yourself a person that handles hard well. Not someone that's waiting for the easy. Because if you have a meaningful pursuit in life, it will never be easy. If you're trying to win a championship, if you're trying to have a family, ask your parents. Do you think it was ever easy for them to raise kids? Karen, is it easy? It's not. Any meaningful pursuit in life, if you want to be successful at it, it goes, it goes to the people that handle hard well. Those are the people that get the stuff they want. People that wait around for easy, you probably see them at the bus stop. They're waiting for easy, the easy bus to come around. Easy bus never comes around. You've got to handle hard. Okay, so don't get discouraged through this time. If it's hard, don't get discouraged. It's supposed to be. And don't wait for it to be easy. Oh, I just got to get through the summer. And then it'll all of a sudden get easy in the fall. No, it won't. It won't. It won't get easy in the fall. So make yourself someone that handles hard well. And then whatever comes at you, you're going to be great. You're going to be great, okay? 1967 Elgin Wildcat football season was not easy. There wasn't anything easy about it. So in 1967, my dad and mom, R.L. and Dottie Ferris, and my older brother by two years, Mike, we moved to Elgin, Texas. Elgin is a small community. At the time I went to school there, there was about 4,000 people that lived there. I think now there's maybe 15, 20,000 because it's booming like Austin is. Uh, and Elgin was not like, unlike a lot of other small towns in Texas. Friday night lights was the big thing, right? Uh, if the football season went well, then the town was in a good mood and things were well. If the football season was terrible, then things were, people weren't in a good mood. I exaggerate a little bit, but not a lot. I mean, football was what people lived and breathed. So when the 1967 season came along, here was our schedule. We had 10 games. Some of the teams listed up there were highly rated in the state. Um, it included our hated Bastrop Bear rivalry game. Uh, but even though the schedule looked difficult, we were very optimistic. And here's why we had a new coach, Bill Bryant, Coach Bill Bryant. Coach Bryant was and is the most intimidating man I've ever met in my life. He's, he was 5'7", or is 5'7", uh, so it wasn't his stature that was so intimidating. It was his persona, his being, his confidence. He walked into any room, he walked onto any field, and he completely filled it up. When he was 15 years old, he left San Antonio and rode his motorcycle from San Antonio to Temple and moved in with his blind grandmother to be raised. When he was at Temple, he led his team. He was a captain. He led his team to two district championships. And then there, from there, he went on to play football at Abilene Christian University or college where he was a captain as well. So he had quite a pedigree. And we were fortunate that he was able to join our, uh, our, our staff in January of 67. So we had all of that fall, like to learn his new defensive scheme and offensive scheme. Y'all hang in here with me, non-football people. I promise you this is worth it. So, uh, and he was, he was a very tough guy. In fact, I don't remember, I, I think I babysat it for his kids one time, and there was some stuff laying out about him being known as One Punch Johnny. I guess he boxed some, and he called One Punch Johnny because all of his fights he won with the first punch. That's just how, that's who this, this guy is. That's who, that's just him. So we were optimistic having this guy come on. And oh, by the way, this was his first head coach job at the age of 28. 28 years old, head coach job. First one. 
He also brought in a new coaching staff, Coach Garrett, Coach Aldridge. Uh, those were the two that I knew really well. I, I got to real close to them. Coach Garrett was the, also the head baseball coach, and Coach Aldridge was a head basketball coach, and I played baseball and basketball, not because I was so good, but the school was pretty small, so, hey, if you could walk and chew gum, you were eligible to play. <laughs> so, anyway, these guys were unbelievable what they sustained us through, and I learned as I watched them that they were men of faith. They were godly men. They were human, so they weren't perfect, but I don't recall them ever saying a curse word in front of me. I can recall a lot of curse words being said, but I don't recall the coaches being the ones that said them. But their faith and their leadership is what sustained me and so many others through this season. Another reason we were uh, excited about the season was uh, 1967 was the first year of mandatory integration. All the black schools and the white schools integrated together. So the black high school became the elementary school. All the black high school kids came and became a part of the Elgin High School Wildcats. They were an exceptionally gifted group of athletes that played at uh, Booker T. Washington High School. They had won a state championship in basketball, and they consistently went far in the football Football pro the programs went into the playoffs almost every year, sometimes making it up to the state state finals. And one of the more legendary players for the Booker T. Washington High School Eagles is shown here, John Westbrook. John Westbrook was the first black football player in what was in the Southwest Conference. Uh, he played football <coughs> for Baylor University. And then finally, we had returning lettermen. We had some outstanding players uh, from the previous year that had been recognized and awarded uh, for their, their play in not only football, but track. Uh, I've got another picture where I'll point out some of these guys. But I was able to meet with uh, a number of these guys personally, Danny Page and Mike Magoni and Chuck Frommy and Ward Payne and Randy Hagman, all of them. And uh, one that's not shown in this picture is Virgil Collins, one of the black players that came over. They were one of the groups that I met with. So we were optimistic about the season for all those reasons. And for what's, what back then, the football rules... The, the rules that govern, the UIL rules uh, allowed you to start having practice two weeks before school started. And we had two-a-days. And that meant that you would practice in the morning, we would meet at 7 in the morning, and then you'd come back up and practice in the afternoon. We would meet at, I don't know, 6 in the afternoon. This is August, and this is in Texas. So can you imagine being wearing a uniform, football uniform in Texas and practicing for two hours. And especially with Coach Bryant as your head coach. I, at the time, I don't know in reflection, but at the time I was pretty sure that some of the things that he had us do was constituted as cruel and unusual punishment. But uh, it served its purpose. And I, looking back, I, I appreciate it. So, on August the 22nd, in 1967, we met for our morning workout. About five minutes into it, I played defensive halfback. I was by no means a star. Uh, I was in the huddle, and one of the leaders of our team, Alan Magnuson, bent over to call the play for the defensive formation, and then he stood up, and he fell over backwards. You knew by the way he landed and by the way he moved or didn't move and by some of the noises that were made that this was not good. Coach Bryant came over and took his helmet off and his color was terrible. 
Um, Coach Ryan immediately said, hey, get an ambulance. And Danny Page and I took off running toward the hospital for about two blocks. <clears throat> and the coaches, other coaches took the players into the locker room. Running to the hospital, one of my shoes came off. And so Danny Page was well ahead of me. And uh, he ran to the hospital. We need an ambulance. We need an ambulance. And on my way, walking back to our locker room, the ambulance passed me, and then it passed me coming back with Alan. So when I got to the locker room, as you can imagine, it was subdued. Some prayers were being offered, but nobody really knew much, and they told us to go home. So I remember dressing in silence. I remember walking home. I lived about, or was staying with my aunt and uncle. They lived about a mile mile and a half from school, and my walk took me right past Coach Bryant's house. And he was sitting on the front porch, bawling his eyes out with his wife's uh, shoulder wrapped, arm wrapped on his shoulder and his three little kids hanging on him. And I had found my shoe I didn't remember walking with one shoe back to the locker room, but on the way home, I found my shoe. So I'm walking down the street, holding my one shoe, looking at this scene, and I knew I wanted nothing to do with it. So I crossed the street, went on home. <clears throat> that was on the 22nd, a uh, Tuesday. On the 20, we, we learned the next day that Alan had died of an aortic aneurysm, a large vessel going into his heart had burst. It had nothing at all to do with football. It could have happened anywhere, anytime. But it happened. <clears throat> There's Alan. On the 24th, that Thursday, they had his funeral. <clears throat> Uh, Alan lived in New Sweden, which is a little community, maybe five, six miles outside of Elgin. There were a lot of different ethnic communities around Elgin. There was a German community, and this was a Swedish community. And they had a church, the New Sweden Evangelical Lutheran Church. And I got this picture from one of my classmates, Sharon Robbins, and uh, I had gone by there and looked at it, and it, it looks exactly the same as it did when Alan's funeral took place there. Football team rode together to the service. I remember thinking as we were walking into the church, this is probably the first time any of these black kids had ever been in a white church. Because the black kids, Elgin, they had a black community. And they had their businesses. They had, they had their, their life on one side of the track. On the other side of the track, I was very seldom saw black people. I didn't have a problem with black people. I just wasn't around black people. And they weren't around us either. And to go to Ryan's credit, when integration took place, I'll give not all the credit, but some, I, did, I learned later in some of these interviews, he actually reached out to some of the black payers' families, went over to see them, invited them over his house to have dinner, which was unheard of back then. You just, you just didn't do it, right? And so in talking to the black players, the, uh, I talked to three, two of them, uh, they didn't feel like they were discriminated against, really. They just, hey, we had our life, you had your life. And the integration, there's not a lot of problems that took place. One, because of Coach Bryant and the work he did ahead of time. And then even the first day of school when the buses came in, Coach Bryant had the football players out there wearing our jerseys, grading these kids and helping them to their class, making sure that things went smoothly. So the local paper wrote, I just want to read a part of it. I, the reason I'm going into so much detail, I think it's important that you understand the humanness of these people and how difficult it was for people. I think that a person's legacy in life is determined to a great deal 
on how they handle difficult things. Just like the coach said, handle hard better. Sitting alone on the knoll in the midst of a rolling farmland between Manor and Elgin is a picturesque old Lutheran church. Most of the farms around that area are tilled by men of Swedish descent and thus the community there. At 10.35 a.m. Thursday, the 24th, the bell in the towering steeple atop the New Sweden Lutheran Church began to toll. The sound was clear in the silence of the countryside. Cattle in a field half a mile away seemed to stop in their tracks as the ringing flowed throughout the area, which fell into silence. For about half a minute, the bell sent forth its message, drawing attention to the church. And then it ended its cry, and several hundreds eyes began, became damp with sorrow as the final rites for the giant of a young man began inside the white frame structure. By physical standards, the deceased comrade of those gathered on the know was anything but a giant. Listed him at five foot four and 133 pounds. Physically, he was a little fellow. But in everything he did, Magnuson was as big as they came. He was a leader from the start to the finish. Magnuson was a top student at Elgin High School, a member of the Beta Society Elgin High School Scholastic Honor Group. He was vice president of the student council uh, his junior year. He was an officer in the Elgin Future Farmers Organization, a leader in his local 4-H club, and the president of his youth group. And he was famous among football people and football lore, not just in Elgin, but in Bastrop, our hated rivals. Because the years before, all 130 pounds of him playing safety was the only thing that stood between a 220-pound all-state running back and a touchdown. 130 pounds, 220 pounds. Head-to-head, bam. They both were knocked unconscious. He laid there for about a minute. Many, I'm telling the truth. This is no exaggeration here. They helped the running back off the field, and Allen got up and went back to the huddle. He was tough. He was much bigger than his stature. Like Coach Bryant was quoted as saying, Allen was the kind of kid not big enough or good enough to play football. He just wouldn't let anybody beat him. Quite a, quite a young man. A person's legacy will be determined by how hard, difficult things are handled. Not just in life, but what about in our Christian life? What about in our Christian life? We'll come back to that. So this was a team after Alan had lost, was lost and we actually had lost another player that was one of the lettermen to injury. He did not go forward with us. So this was a team that we started our season with. If you count them, there's, I think, 25, something like that. But I want to call your attention to a couple of players. One player that is not of note is number 11, the skinny kid on the next to vast loaf. That's me. You can believe it. Uh, but some of the key people I'm going to talk about uh, on the bottom row, number 75, Danny Page. I already talked about him running to the ambulance, get the ambulance right. And then to his left, number 35 and number 77, that's John and Arthur Majors. They're twins. They're the toughest and I don't, well, I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, they're the meanest kids, too. Of those lettermen that I showed you, that other photo, I think six or seven of those kids lived on the same block. You can imagine that. So they grew up together having rock fights, fist fights. You didn't even want to walk down that block if the major boys were out there. They were something else. And then calling out the kids that came over from Booker T. Washington, number 10, Don Meeks, 41, Aubrey Lewis, and then in the back row, 43, Virgil, little brother, Collins. All three of them were their own individual highlight reels, just outstanding athletes. And then in the very back row, 
Uh, number 60, Larry Davis, and number 22, Morris Wayne Jones. So that was, that was our team. So we had our first game September the 8th. We went back to practice the Monday after Allen's funeral, and we practiced up to our first game. And the first game was uh, on September 8th, Friday night, and we played Round Rock. They were good. We thought we were good. They beat us soundly. The game did not finish. In the third quarter, Larry Davis, number 60, standing in the back row, he broke his femur. So the ambulance came and hauled him off in the third quarter. Then with three minutes left in the game, the offense was on the field, and I'm on the sideline with the defensive team. And remember the twins, Arthur and John? John, the meanest kid in town, is standing there on the sideline, and he takes his helmet off. And that was a no-no. Coach Bryant believed football was like war, and in war, a, a warrior would never take their helmet off. You never took your helmet off. Not any point in the time you walked on the field till you got in the dressing room, you kept your helmet on. He took his helmet off. Coach Bryant walked by and said, John, put your helmet on. He said, Coach, my head is killing me. But he put his helmet back on, and then he slumped down to one knee, and then he fell over. Get an ambulance, Coach Bryant says. Danny Page takes off running. Danny, the ambulance chaser, right? And uh, the ambulance isn't there because it had taken Larry to the hospital and hadn't come back yet, so we had to wait. So ambulance came, got John, loaded him up, and took him. And we just didn't finish the game. I mean, we just walked off the field with the scoreboard showing that we hadn't scored, and there was still time left to play. Here's a picture of John taken right before the season started. Remember, a person's legacy will be handled by how hard and difficult things are handled. That's a lot to handle, right? We learned later that John had suffered an aneurysm in his brain. Uh, they didn't believe it was related to football, though football could have contributed to it. He had been hit in the head by a discus the previous track season. And I don't, I don't know any details about it other than the doctor told the family later and the coaches that's probably what led to him having this aneurysm. So on the 21st, we, we, we came back to school on Monday. We started practicing. Uh, we were now short four players. Uh, to cut to the chase, when it was all said and done, 15 of those players that were on that first slide were injured and had not played some games. Um, the seniors that I met with told me that they actually had a meeting after John's injury and talked about, should we even continue this? And I know some of the coaches told me that some of the kids on the junior varsity, their parents said, hey, this is crazy. You can't play. We're not playing this football game anymore. But we, they, they said unanimously they voted, yeah, we're going to honor Allen. We're going to honor the, the players that are no longer here. So we, we did learn that by the Del Valley game that John was expected to live, but he was in intensive care, and his brother, Arthur, was not with the team. He was with his brother. So with our depleted roster on our second game against Del Valley, we got beat 33 to nothing. The only remarkable thing about that game is, well, two. One, I don't think anybody got hurt. And two, after the game, the head coach for Del Valley came to our locker room and addressed us and said, basically, he said, a person's legacy will be handled by 
be determined by how hard difficult things are handled. He said, I know what you're, I don't know what you're going through, but I can understand what you must be feeling. And I admire you for not quitting. The next game was against Georgetown. 41 to nothing. Three games we played and not scored a single point. And this was a real optimistic outlook to start the season, right? But clearly a lot of difficult things had happened. But our coaches, they remained encouraging. You would have never known that we had lost three games so badly and lost so many players. They were just... They were just a rock for us. Then the Caldwell game, 21 to nothing. In the week leading up to the game, the Giddings game, we had a visitor come to our locker room. We, are a lot of, we were getting a lot of press from papers all around about what was going on. So there was an article that was written in the Austin Statesman about this visit to our locker room. And I am going to attempt to read this. So you've got 30 seconds to get your line straight or we are going down the Burma Road. A command from a British officer? Sort of. A line from a Bob Hope movie? Hardly. A shout of warning from an Elgin High School head coach? Bill Bryant? Exactly. And it talks about, it describes Coach Bryant and what he was wearing and his stature and said, basically, he looked so young that if we all were dressed like him, he would look like he was part of the team, 28 years old. His first head coaching job. Can you imagine what he must be thinking? He'd never had a losing season in his life. His first head coach, assistant coach job, his team went to the state championship. He thought at the time, wow, this is pretty easy stuff. The Elgin Wildcats lost 33 to nothing to Round Rock, 34 to nothing to Dell Valley, 41 to nothing to Georgetown, and 21 to nothing to Caldwell in their first four games this season. You can add up that total, but it doesn't interest me. Elgin gained statewide publicity when young Alan Magnuson fell dead in the opening minutes of one of their practice sessions on August 23rd. Then on September 8th, John Magnuson collapsed on the sideline during the game with Round Rock. He's still in the Austin Breckenridge Hospital with a head injury. They have had at Elgin, besides these two misfortunes, a broken leg, a boy with a bleeding ulcer, a heart problem, and enough other physical and psychological injury to make a United States Marine throw up his hands and quit. Times are tough in Elgin, and people in Elgin are tough. Brian is in his first head coach job there. One wonders how that optimistic optimism keeps coming to the surface, but it does. The Elgin offensive line now averaged less than 140 pounds. For you that don't know much about football, that's a pretty small bunch of people. But driving over there someday, drive over there someday and listen for the explosive sounds of contact on the practice floor. Practice field. You can almost hear that explosion from blocks away. And you cannot be there very long and not find yourself getting pulled into the hurricane spirit of Bill Bryant. Boys filter out of the dressing room with its purple interior walls and, and a slight man. This is our visitor. Built, you know, you thought much late. Built, you thought much later much like his son was probably Bill. He came softly into Bryant's office. Bryant stood and said, this is Mr. Magnuson, Alan's dad. He had come to address our team and to encourage us and to basically say, I think you're doing the right thing. Alan would have wanted nothing less than for you guys to continue on. For the next few moments, there were no words. There was only a movement except, there weren't any movements except for the quick flutter of Brian's hand as he discouraged a pesky gnat. You felt like it was time to take a walk, maybe go smoke a cigarette. 
Later, when Magnuson had gone into the interior of the dressing room and addressed the players, he came back to Coach Bryant's office and said, this is the first time Alan's uh, dad has, has been here, except for the football club meetings, but not here. He returned to the office of Coach Bryant's and he said, Coach Bryant, we've got to get a couple of victories which means we got to score some points. Bill, we want y'all to come to the house and visit sometime. He left then placing the Western straw hat back on. So he walked into the interior of the dressing room and saw John Major's pads and shoes resting in the locker room. And he saw Alan's jersey and helmet neatly folded in a makeshift memorial. And then he left. And then the reporter says, and then I turned to leave, and I came face to face with a mirror and a sign above. And below read, you are looking at a fighting Elgin Wildcat. So I moved quickly out of the reflection, knowing he had to be a very special breed of person to stand there and look in that mirror. I would like to tell you that, wow, Alan's dad talked to us, and that was all we needed to turn things around against Giddings. That was the article that I just read. But we lost to Giddings 29 to 12, but we did score our first points. <laughs> Coach Bryant, at the time, we didn't know it. He didn't know it, I'm sure. Uh, was starting to reveal his offensive genius and coming up with the most unusual plays you can ever imagine. Some people would call them trickery. Some people would call them, well, we called them strange names. One of them was called Squirrely. One was called Bombshell. There were several others. But the way we scored our first points of the game was we ran Squirrely. And Squirrely was, and we got really good at kickoff returns because we didn't score much, but the other team scored a lot, so we were always getting kicked off to. So Squirrely was a play where they kicked off, and I was the one that was that caught the ball, and I would run to one sideline like I was returning the ball, and then I would turn around and throw the ball on a kickoff completely across the field to the other side. And on that play, little little brother Collins caught it, and ran 90 yards for a touchdown. Our first touchdown. We scored one more, and we lost 29 to 12. Ten games in, and we're now 0-5. Then we became 0-6 in the Columbus game. Um, so the next game was at Hearn. Coach Bryan, as I said, was this always coming up with these crazy ideas and plays. And he, we, he, even though we were 0-6, we still believed in him. We still like, okay, yeah, sure, let's try it. Why not? And so uh, he kept telling us during practice leading up to the Hearn game, we've got a secret weapon. I have a secret weapon, and it can't be stopped, and we will win our first game. We have a secret weapon. Well... We didn't know what the secret weapon was. And then we go to the drive to Hearn. We're in the locker room. It's Hearn's homecoming game. I think all the schools changed their homecoming game to be against Elgin. Uh, <laughs> and we could hear the players on the other side just talking about the big party they were going to have, who was bringing what keg, and where they were going to meet, and blah, blah, blah. And we're sitting over there. Of course, we're going to war, right? So we can't say anything. We're in dead silence. And uh, that's when Coach Bryant came in and said, okay, time for the secret weapon. And uh, so that was our secret weapon, Arthur Majors. Arthur had returned to the team after being at his brother's side. And he was an unstoppable force. We were so excited when we found out what the secret weapon was that we just 
stampeded out of the gym and onto the field. And the stands were full. The Elgin people, the more we lost, the more they came. You, I mean, you look at the statistics, the box scores or whatever, and it would show many, 4,000 people living in this town. And it would show 3,000 people were at El, from Elgin at the game. 3,000. The other, even the home teams that only have 1,000. So we ran out on that field and nothing. No cheering, nothing. In our excitement, we ran out while they were saying the opening prayer for the game. <laughs> but we won. Kind of, yay! 26 to 3. And our secret weapon was indeed unstoppable. I know at one point he ran for a 15-yard touchdown, and I think literally every player from Hearn was on his back. Couldn't stop the bed. <laughs> Unbelievable. We went on to win our next game, believe it or not, 29 to 14. And then we played our hated rivals, the Bastrop Bears, and they were highly rated in the state, and we almost beat them. The thing I remember about it is two things. One is Don Meeks, one of the black players, uh, returned an interception 95 yards for a touchdown right at the end of the game to almost win it. And the other thing I remember is that that's when we lost another player. Our quarterback got hurt. And guess who was a backup quarterback? Right. I didn't even know the plays. I mean, we didn't have enough players where you, the second team ran anything. I remember getting in a huddle, and they'd send in a play, and it's like, okay, what do I do? I don't think that's how a quarterback's supposed to do, but that's how it worked out. But not a successful season in a lot of people's eyes. This is a picture of John Majors, uh, Arthur's twin brother that had the head injury. This is taken at our football banquet uh, John had recovered enough to attend the banquet and received the Fighting Spirit Award, which, well, as she should. Three players were named to the all-district team unanimously. Arthur, Don Meeks, and Danny Page. There were seven other players that were recognized honorable mention. So that's a lot of players for a team that had two wins to be recognized. So I think in some cases, I won't call it a sympathy vote, but I think in some cases we just had gotten so much respect they had some to do something to recognize some of these players. This is a picture of my friend Aubrey Lewis. Of that team from 1967, three of them went on to play college football. Uh, two of them were just recently inducted into the Elgin High School Hall of Honor. Not so much for the 67 season, but for the following seasons. One of them was Aubrey Lewis, number 41. I went to his house, and uh, we got caught up, and he recorded a video for, Doc, for uh, Coach Bryant, and I took this picture of him with this plaque. And Coach Bryant, his first head coach job at Elgin, he won two games, lost almost an entire team to injury. And from there, he went on to coach at, for 45 years, at 20 different schools. He had quite a personality, and he was known for turning around programs. But uh, maybe his intensity didn't allow for him to hang around a long time in some places. But he ended up being recognized as uh, ended up being voted into the Texas High School uh, Hall of Fame or Hall of Honor. A real unbelievable honor to get that. And it's amazing that a man who started out at the age of 28 years old and was faced with the difficulties he's faced with ended up having a legacy like this. But it's like that slide has said several times. It's how you handle the difficult, hard things in life that are going to determine what your legacy is. Can I get an amen? Yeah. 
Here's a picture of Coach Bryant. I know he doesn't look intimidating in this picture, but when I went up to see him in Canyon and visited at his house, I went in and sat down next to him on his couch, and I was physically shaking. I was so intimidated by the man. Uh, I took this picture in his office, uh, and he had all these framed pictures of all these teams he had coached, of all the players that had been recognized as All-State and All-American players. He had a couple of players, I think, that went to the NFL. I mean, just an unbelievable legacy that he has. And uh, I remember when I tracked him down in, Jan in, I think, October of last year, and I got his number and I called him. I hadn't talked to him in probably 40 years. And uh, he answered the phone and I said, Coach Bryant, this is Jeff Ferris. I was one of, <laughs> I was one of your Elgin Wildcats. And he said immediately, number 11, how are you doing? I could not believe it. And then he called us about some other names right off top of his head. And then some names he couldn't remember. He just remembered their number. How's number so-and-so doing? Where's number such-and-such -such at? And uh, he filled in a lot of blanks for me. And his wife, actually, uh, I'm going to send this to him, so Coach Bryant, don't be upset. But I think your wife's information was more accurate than yours were for some of those. Because <laughs> he would tell a story, and she'd say, no, Bill, that wasn't in Elgin. But 20 stops, hey. So uh, quite a legacy, right? Going back to my first question, what is your legacy? More importantly, what is your legacy in Christ? I know I've taken you through, I've taken you a long journey through a, a story that happened 57 years ago, but my purpose in doing it was twofold. One, to let you help me honor some people that I believe need to be honored. And the other is to just reinforce how important it is for you to be able to handle difficulties in life in order for you to have a legacy, not just in life, but in Christ. What is your legacy in Christ? Again, I already showed this, but I'll show it one more time. I think it bears it. Talking about... Satan, we have, an we have an adversary, and he goes around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. So when we come against adversaries in life, we should not say, why me? Why me? As Christians, we should run to Christ. We should run to Christ because that is where our hope is. We can continue to ask, why me? Or we can fix our eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and deal with the difficulties of life, the challenges of life, the hard things. We can deal with them according to how God's word instructs us. In Hebrews 12:1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that can so easily entangle us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer of our faith. In chapter 11, Paul talks about the mighty men of faith that have gone before us. He talks about Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Moses, he talks about the Israelites taking the promised land. And then he turns to 12, 1 and says, so seeing all these people that I just talked about, they're like a cloud of witnesses, a cloud of witnesses watching how we run this way, race. And you can't run a race looking behind you. You can't run a race looking at your past. You can't run a race carrying your burdens with you. The jealousies, the bitterness, the anger, the unforgiveness. You can't run a race that Christ has set for you to run carrying this burden. 
Christ said, Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Give your burdens to the Lord. I don't have to be a prophet to know that people sitting out here listening to me and people that are watching online or people who might see this later, I don't have to be a prophet to say, you've got problems. I have problems I'm dealing with. My family members have problems they're dealing with. I know friends that have problems that they're dealing with. And I know members of this church personally that are friends that have issues they're dealing with. We live in a fallen world and we have an enemy. But for us to continue to run the race that God has set for us to run, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. And we must not look backwards. We must move forward. In Romans chapter 8, this is my last slide, I think. I just kind of cherry-picked some verses, mainly for the sake of time, but I didn't leave any of the context out. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes to the Romans, we know what God makes, we know that God makes all things work together for the good of those who love him and are chosen to be a part of his plan. You cannot disqualify yourself from God's plan for your life. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's been done to you. I don't care what you've said. I don't care what's been said to you. Through Christ, we have forgiveness. And through Christ, you are qualified to receive his grace and to have an everlasting home with him. 31 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And 38 says, for I know that nothing can keep us from the love of God. Death cannot, life cannot, angels cannot, leaders cannot, any other power cannot. Hard things now are in, the, are in the future cannot keep us from the love of God. The world above or the world below cannot. Any other living creature cannot keep us away from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, in speaking to King Agrippa, I think, gave his testimony of what he had experienced, how he had been called, and how he came to understand that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And at the end of that testimony, King Agrippa said, hmm, that's interesting. You have almost persuaded me to be a Christian. And there's nothing else recorded anywhere that I've read that says he actually had another chance. When I say you can't be disqualified, you, nothing can disqualify you, but you can disqualify yourself. You can disqualify yourself by not accepting an invitation to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. So this is, you have an opportunity to do this, right? Now I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward, if you would. And we're going to open the altar up. And it'll be a time for... This is the kind of church where you pray about anything. I've been to a church where the only time you go forward for prayer is if it's an adultery or you got cancer. So this church is you come forward if you got any need, any need at all, any difficulties that you're dealing with right now, now's the time to come and join and believe, join in with a believer in praying about it. If you haven't accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day. Like King Agrippa, I don't know that he got another chance. And just based on the story that I told you about Alan and John and all these other things that happened to my classmates, they didn't know that day that they weren't going to have another day. Thank you for coming today. I appreciate your attention, and uh, I beg your forgiveness. It's like, man, I came to church to hear some message, and they only quoted a few scriptures and told me a football story. 
but uh, my intent was to encourage you to, as you face difficulties in life, don't let those difficulties define you. Let how you handle them through Christ's help define your legacy in Christ. Let me pray a blessing over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. May his blessed favor be upon you for a thousand generations on your family and your children and their children and their children. May his presence go before you and behind you and beside you and all around you and within you. For God is with you in the morning, in the evening, in your coming and your going, in your weeping and rejoicing. God is for you. Amen.